Normally I introduce that song beforehand to explain what is happening, so maybe I'll just offer a quick reflection. God has said in verse 4 that he is going to testify against his people, that he has a problem with them. Then he said in verse 4 that they bring their sacrifices and he can't see any fault with them. So in a sense it looks like they're honoring him and worshiping him. But at the same time, he says that they hate it when they re- he reminds them of their sin. We didn't cho- read or sing verse 9, but he lists a number of different sins that they do, even while bringing their sacrifices, doing what looked like right worship. So he said that um, he will punish those who continue in that, but yet to those who repent, he promises a rich salvation. With that in mind, we'll now turn to our scripture reading to Luke 16 verses 9 through 31. I'm just going to back up to the start of chapter 15 to give a little bit of the context. In the first two verses of chapter 15, you see that there's tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to eat with Jesus, and he's welcoming them. And the Pharisees and the scribes are complaining that, that he's doing that. So then Jesus tells three different parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, to say that he welcomes sinners who, who come to him. And then in, I don't have headings in my Bible, in verse, oh, at the start of 16, now he turns from speaking to the Pharisees to speaking of his, to his disciples, and he tells the parable about the dishonest manager. And the moral of the story is, look, these evil men like the dishonest manager, they use earthly wealth to invest for their future. How much more should the children of God use earthly wealth to invest for their eternal futures? So we'll pick up in verse 9 of chapter 16. Here Jesus is saying to his disciples, I say to you, make friends for yourself, by unrighteous mammon, it's unrighteous wealth, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you trust the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And here begins the words of our text. 
There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So far, our reading from God's word, I invite you to keep your Bibles open because we'll refer to our text throughout the sermon. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to introduce you to Phil. Phil is a Pharisee. Now, I know the Pharisees have a bad reputation among us, but I want to assure you that Phil is a good neighbor and he is well-respected in the synagogue. He wears his suit and tie to church, and he carefully ties his income for his church contribution. And being a Pharisee, Phil is what we would call today a, a lifelong elder. He knows his Bible inside and out, and his prayers. Man, Phil prays such long, eloquent, deep-sounding spiritual prayers. Everyone respects Phil the Pharisee. Recently, Phil has heard about this new teacher, Jesus, and he wants to, to see and hear Jesus for himself. But what Phil sees from Jesus is shocking. He eats and welcomes tax collectors and sinners, those people who bring dishonor on the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now, Jesus drops a bombshell on Phil just before our text in verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What? 
Phil scoffs. Turning to his friend, he, he begins to ridicule Jesus. Who does this Jesus think he is? Doesn't he know what, what all of us know, that, that wealth and, and possessions are indicators of how pleased God is with us? What does this Jesus know? He, he's just a, a simple poor man trying to rock the boat. You see, as it says in verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were idolaters. But they couldn't openly embrace their selfish idolatry while still maintaining their respect in in the religious community, their prestigious position among the people of God. So what did they do? What did the Pharisees do? Well, look what Jesus says to them in verse 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. How did the Pharisees justify themselves before men? Well, Jesus called them out later in his ministry and is recorded in Matthew 23, verse 23. He said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe your mint, your dill, and your cumin, meaning every part of the law that, that people know about and can, and can see you keeping, those parts of the law you keep. But he goes on, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Because the Pharisees tithed their money so faithfully, and because they were rich, remember, they thought that wealth and health was an indicator of God being pleased with you. Because they tithed their money and because they were wealthy, it looked to people like the Pharisees were faithful followers of God. But really, their religion was it was an empty husk because they were idolaters. The Pharisees were in serious trouble. Sure, they, they looked good to their fellow man, but God knew their hearts. The way they religiously justified their idolatry, it was an abomination in his eyes. And so Jesus graciously does not leave them in their sin, but he exhorts them. He exhorts them with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the same message that came to them also comes to us this morning under this theme. Because the rich man and Lazarus' eternal destinies are irreversible, Jesus exhorts us to be faithful. Because the rich man and Lazarus' eternal destinies are irreversible, Jesus exhorts us to be faithful. And our first point is that Jesus warns us against selfishness and against self-justification. The parable starts by, by Jesus saying, once upon a time. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't actually say once upon a time. But Jesus is telling a parable. And with his opening words, his, his hearers would have known that it was a parable. And that this was not a historical story. A parable, it teaches a lesson, and it, not every detail that Jesus includes is meant to tell us something specific about heaven and about hell. So once upon a time, says Jesus, there was a rich man who, who dressed in the latest designer clothes and, and who partied it up lavishly every day of the week. If you look in verse 19, the word purple, it refers to his expensive outer robe. After all, purple was the color for kings. 
And also in verse 19, fine linen. This refers to the rich man's tailor-made undergarment. This man was so rich that that he could spring for custom-made designer underwear. Verse 20. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. You want to talk about opposite ends of the economic spectrum? Well, well, here it is. One man is, is rich. The other is poor. One is dressed in designer clothes. The other thing, well, the only thing Lazarus is clothed, clothed with is his source. One is parting it up and feasting Sunday through Saturday. The other is just longing to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. These men are complete opposites. But it actually gets worse. In verse 21, it also goes on to say, moreover, the dogs. And we shouldn't be thinking here of our cute little house pets, but more like those wild scavenging coyotes. Something like the dogs which ate Jezebel's body in the Old Testament. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Unable to defend himself, Lazarus has sunk to the lowest of the low. By all observable criteria, many in Jesus' day would have, they would have concluded that the, that the rich man, he was blessed and loved by God, while, the, while Lazarus was not. But what happens? Well, we see in verse 22 that the beggar died and that he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The beggar died. Did he starve to death? Did he finally succumb to his sores? Or or perhaps the dogs? Well, we're we're not actually told how Lazarus died. Neither are we told that he received a burial. Lazarus's body would have been exposed to the scavengers, the final disgrace that he received on earth. Now, in verse 22, our text also says, that the rich man also died and was buried. Of course, he was honored in death. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. They say that death is the great equalizer. Rich or poor, Pharisee or tax collector, unless Christ returns first, all of us are going to die. Our bodies will be placed in the earth. Earth will be placed on us. And to earth we will return. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, congregation, but this is truly a humbling reminder. It's also an important warning. Sure, we're all equal in that we all die But there's certainly not equality in the eternal outcomes of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is honored, ushered into glory by angels. He now rests at the bosom of Abraham. He receives an honored position in heaven. But the rich man descends into the fire and torment 
of Hades. Do you remember back in 2001, watching the news after 9-11? Or perhaps you have seen um, the ongoing news, um, news reports of the war in, in Ukraine and, and the devastation that is there. The pictures that we see, they are, they are shocking and horrific. But imagine, just imagine how much worse it would be if you were there in person. Jesus, in the parable of our text, he is painting a picture of hell. If his description is terrifying, imagine how much worse the real thing is. Now, Jesus isn't saying that all poor people will go to heaven and all rich people will go to hell. After all, wealthy Abraham himself in the parable, he's in heaven. He proves this point. No, Jesus in this parable is condemning the unfaithful and selfish misuse of wealth. In verse 19, Jesus doesn't criticize the rich man for for being wealthy. He doesn't even criticize him for how he got his wealth. In fact, Jesus doesn't condemn him for anything that he did. No, the problem isn't what he did, it's what he didn't do, his sins of omission. He was unfaithful, not using his wealth to glorify God and to serve his neighbors. It's not as if he wasn't aware that Lazarus was at his gate. He just couldn't be bothered. In verse 24, the rich man, he condemns himself with his own words. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. He knew Lazarus by name. He was aware of him. And yet he wouldn't even share the scraps that fell from his table. And as a result, congregation, Abraham denies his request in verse 24 that he would send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. God is just. Abraham points to God's eternal justice in verse 25. No, I can't send Lazarus to help you because you are being punished for your selfish idolatry on earth. Verse 25, he says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted and you are being tormented. Your actions have consequences, rich man. God is just. And the consequences are permanent. Abraham gives another reason that he can't send Lazarus in verse 26. He says, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. In other words, congregation, we don't get a mulligan. We don't get a do-over after death. Heaven and hell are forever. The rich man must have been surprised to find himself in Hades. He had everything put together on earth. He was wealthy. Obviously, God was favorable towards him. Obviously, God was blessing him. Oh, and you know what? He was one of God's covenant children. You see him cry out for mercy in verse 24 on the basis of his covenant status. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Father Abraham. 
Abraham, I'm one of your descendants. I'm part of God's people. I've been circumcised. I've received the covenant sign. You have to have mercy on me, Abraham. Well, Abraham acknowledges the rich man's covenant status. In fact, in verse 25, he says, he calls him son. Abraham said, son, remember. The congregation, merely being part of the covenant, merely checking the the boxes of outward appearances doesn't count towards our final destinies. Jesus is warning the Pharisees, just like John the Baptist warned them in Luke 3, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Rather, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus is warning the Pharisees not to rely on outward appearances, making yourself look holy in the eyes of others is an abomination to God if your heart is set on idols. The idols of our hearts can be anything. Money, just like the Pharisees, or anything that money brings, the status, the security, the pleasure of money. We're not Pharisees, brothers and sisters but the same temptations and inclinations also affect us today. Jesus wants to warn us not to be complacent in sin and and content with the opinions of others. How do we pursue idols and then justify ourselves in the eyes of men when when our actions fall short of God's standards? Perhaps we have been justifying our idolatrous love of money with the catchword, busy. Hey, I've noticed you've missed prayer meeting and Bible study over the last number of weeks, and and I've heard that your wife complaining that that you're you're never around much. What's going on? Oh, I'm I'm just so busy with work. Now, I need to be cautious here. And let me state that there's not necessarily a problem with being busy at work. God does send busy seasons. But congregation, might it be possible that our constant busyness is the way that we try to justify our pursuit of wealth and possessions? Could it be that that busyness is the acceptable Canadian Reformed way, the, the, the justifiable before others way, that we pursue idolatry and neglect serving Christ and his people. How about our self-centered, idolatrous use of time? Congregation, this is hard for me to say, and I really don't know many of you well, but does it perhaps happen that we selfishly spend our evenings with Netflix or social media and that we Neglect to actively shepherd our children's hearts towards Christ, just as we heard earlier from Deuteronomy 6. And do we maybe justify this by, oh, we send them to a Christian school, of course, and, or, oh, we're, we send them to catechism, they're okay. Yes, our schools and our catechism classes are incredible blessings from God, and we should be thankful for them. But is it possible that we use these blessings to justify idolatrous use of our time and neglect to spiritually nurture our children's hearts to Christ? 
Are we justifying before others and faithfulness to Jesus? And teens and young adults, I'm, I, I think I'm one of you, so I can speak about this myself. Does it not often happen that we are content to go along with the flow, to live as everybody else is, even though we know that partying it up on Saturday, sexual immorality is, is wrong? Does it sometimes happen that we look at, at, at others and we say, oh, they grew out of it. They, they went that way, but they grew out of it as well. It's okay. Well, I'll live it up. I'll sow my wild oats, but it'll all be okay in the future. Congregation, this is idolatry. And it's religiously justified idolatry. We're trying to justify our actions. Jesus is warning the Pharisees and us through the rich man, that our idolatrous actions here on earth have consequences. We might try to justify them. We might even give a a religious justification to make ourselves look good. But God knows our hearts. Jesus is asking us, he's asking you this morning to evaluate your life, to see if you are faithfully serving him or if you are playing if you're playing religion, making yourself look pious before others, even banking on your covenant status. If that is the case, dear brothers and sisters, it's my duty before God to call you to repentance, to warn you. God will judge eternally those who live in selfish idolatry, even if they make it look respectable. Please be warned and repent in faith. We come now to our second point. Jesus also calls us to repentance and faith. Am I a rich man or a Lazarus? Jesus intends for us to ask this question. This was his intention with telling the parable. But then he introduces a new character in verses 27 and 28. The rich man, he goes on to say in verse 27... I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Here's the twist, Jesus says. The eternal destinies of the rich man and Lazarus are set. But there are five brothers who still have time to change course. Are they going to respond to the parable in faith and repentance? Are you going to respond in faith and repentance while there's still time to heed God's word? The rich man and Abraham, they have a disagreement on how his brothers should be warned. Send Lazarus, um, the rich man pleads. Maybe if, maybe if Lazarus returns to my brothers as a spirit, then, then they'll believe. No, Abraham says. Moses and the prophets. This is another way of of referring to the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets, these are enough. Let them hear them. The rich man, he disagrees. Hearing the Old Testament, it wasn't enough for him, was it? But take careful note in verse 31 of Abraham's response. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. The problem isn't a lack of information. 
The Old Testament contained everything that the rich man and his five brothers needed to know God's will. Moses wrote extensively on how the poor were to be cared for and not abused. The problem for the rich man, it lay with his will. They knew what God required. The Pharisees also. But their idolatrous, selfish hearts, they refused to submit to God's law. And congregation, nothing, not supernatural experiences, not visions, not dreams, nothing except for the Spirit of God working with God's Word can soften our stubborn and idolatrous hearts, not even witnessing a resurrection. Did you notice how Abraham ups the ante in verse 31? The rich man, he wanted Abraham to send Lazarus as a spirit, but Abraham explains that this is pointless. They, they won't even listen if somebody is raised from the dead. And by saying this, Jesus alludes to his upcoming resurrection. After all, when the guards reported what they had seen, that Jesus had been raised from the dead, what was the response? They fabricated a lie and tried to hide, hide the fact that Jesus had actually rose. Congregation, do you see how hard the natural human heart is? The total depravity of man. These people knew that Jesus, whom they saw dead on the cross, that he had risen from the dead, and yet they refused to believe in him. That is how hard sinful human hearts are. Congregation, that shows us how incredibly thankful that we should be to God, that that he does soften our hearts. Even a resurrection won't work faith and repentance, but God's Holy Spirit does. He works in our hearts with his word. This means that every time we open the Bible, every time we read it, our response seals our eternal destiny. Every time we open God's book, right now, we are standing before the gates of heaven and hell. That is how serious it is to hear God's word. This is not like reading a novel because only God's word calls us to change and only God's word gives us the motivation to change. Jesus is why we can change. The reason the Pharisees rejected what the Old Testament said about the proper use of money and the care for the poor because in their idolatry, they rejected what the Old Testament said about Jesus. Do you remember how on the road to to Emmaus, Jesus explained to the two men how the Christ had to suffer and to enter into glory? How did he explain this to those two men? Luke 24, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The entire Old Testament witnesses to Jesus. Ultimately, the Pharisees, same stubborn hearts that refused to accept God's Old Testament law. Those hearts also refused to accept Jesus. And the Old Testament's witness to Jesus as the hope of Israel. In this parable, Jesus is not only calling the Pharisees to repentance from their idolatry. In verse 31, Jesus alludes to his upcoming resurrection and how they must have faith in him. Only 
by believing in Christ is their hope for heaven. We come now to our final point. Jesus also encourages us with the hope of heaven. As the Old Testament and the rest of God's word is opened, we stand before the gates of heaven and hell because they speak of Christ. The Bible tells how Jesus was the ultimate poor person. Yes, he was physically poor. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. But being poor in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of Luke, it meant more than just poverty. It means being afflicted, being oppressed. A person was poor because others had despised God's law. And a poor person, a true poor person in the Bible, he turned to God in prayer and in reliance on him. Please, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 22. We may pray Psalm 22 in our affliction, but first and foremost, this was Christ's psalm, and it demonstrates how he was poor. It's on page 629. Jesus was the one who cried out in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became that that worm in verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. You also see in verse 8 how they mocked him on the cross. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It was Jesus who properly said in verse 16 through verse 18, Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Congregation, Jesus was poor in every sense of the word. He was also perfect as a poor person. He was perfect because in his affliction, even on the cross, Jesus turned to God in prayer. He prayed Psalm 22 to God. And dear brothers and sisters, that is good news for us. Because have we not often lived selfish, idolatrous lives like the Pharisees and the rich man? But like those five brothers, you are called to repent and believe the word of God you've heard today. Since Jesus lived a perfect life as a poor person, you can believe in him, repent from your idolatry, and be saved. God's word is directing you to Christ because when you embrace him in faith, his perfect and righteous life as a poor person is imputed by God to your account. God sees you through the lens of Christ, humble, meek, and poor, as someone who perfectly relies on and trusts in God. So believe in Christ and be encouraged with the hope of heaven by faith in his name. We've gone through the parable now. 
We've been warned by the rich man's fate, and we've also identified with those five brothers. Jesus has exhorted us to repentance and faith. But congregation, in one way or another, all of us who are faithful Christians are also like Lazarus. Jesus said that all who follow him would suffer and be persecuted. And the threat of persecution and the revilement in society is certainly growing for faithful Christians, is it not? I want to end by giving you hope, especially hope for those who have been grievously oppressed and afflicted in the past or in the future like Lazarus. Reflect again on that horrific situation of Lazarus, diseased, starving, ridiculed and tormented by by those dreadful dogs. And not only is Lazarus dehumanized and disgraced, he also has no voice in this story. He never even speaks. He suffers alone and in silence. And we we might ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Congregation, please hold on to this detail. Jesus does this in no other parable except here. Jesus gives Lazarus a name. The rich man receives no name because he is not known by God, but Lazarus does. To have a name, it it means that you matter to someone. Jesus sees and he values Lazarus. Lazarus suffered alone and in silence, but God saw and God cared. Do you know what Lazarus means? It means helped by God. Though Lazarus suffered in silence, he suffered in reliance on God. Because unlike the rich man, Lazarus read and he knew the promises of God, of his word. He knew that God is a shield and a stronghold for the oppressed and the afflicted. And so he humbly waited for the Lord to act. Brothers and sisters, even though you can, may sometimes not see God at work in your sufferings, even though you may suffer in, in silence and in shame like Lazarus, though there may be rich and powerful people who oppress you, please wait for the Lord. Certainly it is not easy. Often it may seem like he does not hear or that he does not care, but trust in him. God's word records how he has repeatedly cared for the poor and the afflicted, how he has loved them in the past. Wait for him. Your name is known to him. It is written in his book. He has engraved it on the palm of his hands, meaning there is no way that he can ever forget you. There will be justice rendered against your oppressors. There will be a reversal. If it does not happen in this life, Jesus has guaranteed it with his unbreakable and unchangeable word that it will happen in the next life. And that reversal will be unchangeable also for you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. Amen.